This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there. We at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Baker Mayfield, undraftable, off my board. The Cleveland Browns select Baker Mayfield. What's up, everybody, and welcome into the OBR Film Breakdown. I'm your host, Jake Burns. Hope you're having a great week, and we have some fun content for you guys coming out today that is going to cover, um, I think we've spent a lot of time on the Browns draft specifically. At the end of this, we will talk about um, Nick Harris and Donovan Peoples-Jones on the in-depth player analysis side of things, but I also want to, before we get there, uh, work our way around the AFC North and get a feel for what transpired for competing teams in the division, and then have one of their specialized writers on to talk about those drafts. So we will spend an equal amount of time with each of those guys and and talk about their takes on individual teams' draft, and and it'll be fun. It'll teach you a little bit about the state of those franchises and sort of where the Browns will have to be uh, to, to, you know, win the division as they would hope to do for the first time since 1989 or whenever that was. I think it was 89 at this point. I can't totally remember. Before we get to our first guest, we are going to talk about betonline.ag. You have heard me talk about them before. I'm going to keep talking about them, the blackjack, the poker, and their virtual poker rooms that they have open 24-7. They have the live daily Madden simulations to help you out until we get to actual maybe baseball, basketball, whatever, and eventually football season. And you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, among many other things. They're open 24 hours a day, and their bonus is convenient. It is not locked away until you hit a certain threshold. You get that bonus quickly and conveniently to offset some of the money that you put in, and hopefully you can turn that into big money in your pocket. So use the promo code BLUEWIRE, join today, get that welcome bonus, bet online, your online wagering solution. Okay, so we are going to start with the Cincinnati Bengals, which means bringing on my good friend James Rapine, who was with 92.3. He came to Cleveland to cover the Indians. James had been with the Bengals and covered the Bengals um, through Locked on Bengals and a couple other radio outlets down in Cincinnati before. He is back uh, down in Cincinnati now. He's covering them for All Bengals, which is Sports Illustrated's affiliate of the Cincinnati Bengals. He is leading that coverage as the editor and um, lead beat writer and all of that good stuff that comes with it. And he is back on his Locked on 
Bengals podcast. We have Locked On Browns with Jeff Lloyd, and he does a great job, the Locked On Network. And uh, James would be jumping back on to take Joe Goodberry's spot with Locked On Bengals. So if you find a chance to listen to him on another uh, podcast network, that's a great route because they cover the Bengals really, really well. So we're going to talk about the Bengals. Before we jump over to James, though, I do want to go through who they picked, right? So just kind of a, a run down the list. Joe Burrows, who they take first. Round two, pick 33, T. Higgins, wide receiver out of Clemson. Round three is Logan Wilson, the linebacker out of Wyoming. Okay. Round four is Akeem Davis-Gaither, the linebacker, pick 107, the linebacker out of Appalachian State. Uh, round five is Khalid Kareem, the D-end out of Notre Dame. Round six is Hakeem Adinje, the uh, offensive tackle, who they might be bumping down to offensive guard out of Kansas. And then lastly, Marcus Bailey, linebacker from Purdue. A lot of names Browns fans should be familiar with. As uh, a lot of names that, that I think in mock simulators and mock drafts, Browns were particularly interested, especially those three linebackers. So let's get over to our interview with James and talk about how the Bengals did and where they go in 2020. So James, man, this is the the optimum time. I talk about this a few years ago when I really started to dive into Browns film content, and it really couldn't have been a better time when Baker Mayfield came in as the first pick and started taking off. You kind of getting the same vibe heading back to Cincinnati with uh, with the Joe Burrow arrival. Absolutely, Jake. I think this is the the perfect time, really, for uh, to me to transition from Cleveland to Cincinnati and and start covering the Bengals again. And fans are energized; they are ready for a winner, and they believe in Joe Burrow. He's a guy that uh, not just because he's from Ohio, but just the the confidence he brings, the the it factor. And there are some similarities there, uh, whether Bengals fans want to admit it or not, with a Baker Mayfield because they're they're not afraid to speak their mind. They <laughs> both have Heisman's right, and and they are uh, going to do what they think is best for the team and, and to lead the team. And I, I think that that's when you're talking about Cincinnati, when you're talking about Cleveland, two organizations that haven't had nearly the amount of success that the fan base so desperately wants the teams to have. I think you need uh, someone that is willing that has broad shoulders and, and can take on that, that type of burden. And I think Joe Burrow certainly uh, is able to do that and has shown that he can do something uh, of that stature. And the fan base sees it, they feed off of it, and they're certainly excited for the future of, of the Bengals. Well, I really would have appreciated if the Bengals had found their quarterback savior again from the West Coast. You know, it's really hard for me not to <laughs> like Joe Burrow having watched him play his high school ball at Athens and tracing him to Ohio State and I really loved him more than most. I, I was kind of disappointed when he lost that quarterback job and thought ultimately he would become a pretty good player. Um, you know, wherever he went, he chose LSU, and I was really fascinated by LSU because LSU had just had such a string of terrible quarterback play, and I thought he could provide some stability there. Now, the 60-touchdown season that he turned into, like, holy cow, man. I, 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 It's been crazy. I'm fascinated to watch if this is the Joe – that is going to be playing this cool-headed player, this pocket manipulator, this this guy who knows how to uh, you know take the opportune chance to run a little bit, and if we if we see that guy continue to mature into the NFL, it's it's hard to feel optimistic about the AFC North for Cleveland fans because he's really good, and um, you know that's not to knock Baker or the Browns or what they're doing, but it's just Joe is a very good player when he's dialed in as we saw last year and just dominating the level of college football that you you so rarely see quarterbacks dominate that that conference. So I'm fascinated. Look, we could talk Joe Burrow all day, and, and I think Browns fans have seen enough about him and know who he is. And I'm interested <laughs> in the rest of the draft, James. Like, what are your thoughts of, and I, I, ta- I introduced the 
players before we came on here, and I just kind of interested in your thoughts about how they did the rest of the you know the rest of the three days there. I like what they did. I, I like what they did. You mentioned the AFC North, and, and I look around and. Really, I, I think it's probably, at least on paper, the best division in the NFL. I mean, you've got uh, a bunch of Heisman Trophy winners playing quarterback, a two-time Super Bowl champ playing quarterback. But the the key to the Bengals draft to me was shoring up and, and completing the process of, of what has been uh, a revamping, a retooling, a remaking of one of the worst defenses in the NFL. And I think they went into this offseason knowing that when you're 2-14, and 14, you're not going to be able to fill every weakness. You're not going to be able to turn every weakness into a strength. But one of their main goals was to completely change their defense. And when you look at the rest of the division, the Browns have arguably the best weapons in the NFL. I, I, I think that that's, they're up there with the, the best teams, and I can make an argument that they're number one in that category. Lamar Jackson, as dynamic as he is and the speed he has on that team, tough to contain. So I think those two teams alone, that's what you're trying to prepare for and trying to compete against. So I like what they did from a linebacker standpoint. They get Josh Bynes from Baltimore and free agency. Then they triple down in the draft. And I don't think they planned on doing this. I just think they went with best player available. And you go get a, a Logan Wilson from Wyoming, a guy they had a high second round grade on. And he falls to uh, round three at the beginning, pick 65. Then Akeem Davis Gaither. I know Cleveland fans have, have probably paid attention to these players because Browns were looking at linebacker as well. Akeem Davis Gaither's there to start round four. And there's no doubt in my mind he was the top player on their board then as well. And they had a high third round grade on him. So you're getting these guys later than you expected. And it's a weakness. It's a weakness, Jake, that this team has had for the better part of a decade. I mean, outside of undrafted guys like Vinny Ray, who is a pro's pro, and Vontez Perfect, who obviously had a high ceiling but was not consistent, had injury issues, and obviously had his uh, physical uh, issues as well on the field that got himself in trouble and got himself fined, they needed to shore up this position. And I think they've done that over uh, the past couple of drafts in free agency. You get Marcus Bailey in the seventh round out of Purdue. I like the value uh, of that pick as well. It's a risk because he has, he's had some injury history. But I, I think that if you emerge from this draft, and I say this a lot of, about the Browns, you know, if you get two or three of the picks right, including Baker Mayfield in the 2018 draft, that's a great draft, right? Well, th this draft, if you're the Bengals, if you got the Burrow pick right, everyone feels good about Higgins, and then you fill that linebacker void that has plagued the Bengals for, like I said, basically a decade then I think you feel really good. So I like what they did. I think uh, the the T. Higgins pick is, is going to be so huge when you talk about Joe Burrow's development because you got a guy that has a huge catch radius that can work in the red zone, that can build a rapport with Burrow because there is some uncertainty uh, amongst the other wide receivers and who's going to be there, who's not going to be there after this se uh, season. You know that, that T. Higgins is going to be there. And so I like what they did. Um, and, and it's just, it's going to be, it's going to take more than a year to completely get this thing turned around. But I think the Bengals have done a, a heck of a job, uh, in the off season with the free agents they signed. And then obviously what they did in the draft, I think that was a, a good way to, to continue to boost the roster and move things forward. Yeah. Good, good stuff, especially on linebacker, because I know Browns fans, myself in particular, when we did these simulators or looked at team needs, um, I was very high on Logan Wilson and I thought that. 
If he was there at 74, the Browns would really seriously entertain him. They did trend young in this draft, Cleveland, and that's not surprising to me considering the angle at which they're coming from this thing um, in terms of trying to uh, eye now, eye in the future, that kind of stuff and sort of the analytical-driven things. But I know Logan's older, but he seemed like, as I studied him, and I I watched Scott, I watched five or six of his games, and um, he just seemed like the ideal Joe Schobert replacement. And... I know mm-hmm. that Cincinnati was very in on Joe and free agency, and it kind of fell apart there at the end. But I think Logan will be fun. And I know that if he was there at 74, the Browns would have entertained him. And I think if, if Akeem Davis-Gaither had gotten to 115, Cleveland would have also very seriously entertained him. So two linebackers that go slightly ahead of Cleveland, 10 picks or so, uh, both times. And uh, it, Cleveland goes different directions, right? They change, they trade down from 74 because they didn't totally love that slot and thought they could get another player at 88. And it's interesting just how those two drafts kind of run parallel. Listen, I'm, I'm also a big Marcus Bailey fan, and, and getting him in the seventh round is, is really a dream because it's just a lotto ticket. If that guy turns into something, you know, he has an abundance of skill, and he can, if he can stay healthy, man, that's a, that's a home run. I'll ask you real quick, too, um, you know, which of those players you, you mentioned, T. Higgins, I'm going to, again, I'm, I'm kind of cheating you a little bit here because – I'm, I'm removing Joe Burrow from this equation. Which of these <laughs> other picks? Uh, which of the other picks do you see potentially impacting the 2020 roster uh, and really the season most? It's interesting. It's interesting because I, I would initially probably say uh, Logan Wilson, right? And he, because he's a guy that I think could come in right away play on passing downs. Uh, he might not start, right? But Josh Bynes. Uh, split snaps with him he can make a, an impact on special teams at the same time I look at this wide receiver core and AJ Green has missed 29 out of the past 54 games of his career uh, John Ross has missed he missed eight games last year in uh, the, they've only played I think it's nine games total since Ross was together since Ross was drafted in 2017 it's been a struggle at, at that spot keeping those guys healthy so T Higgins is the other factor here uh, so I, I think he could certainly have an impact. I still lean Logan Wilson uh, in Akeem Davis-Gaither. I think one of those guys is just going to come in and be such a uh, – I, I want to say pro's pro, right, the, the, in its cliche, but a guy that's just ready to go and contribute in multiple different ways. I, I know Davis-Gaither, there's some injury concerns there, so I, I'll say Logan Wilson. But really top to bottom, I think they have guys that can contribute right away. Like it wouldn't shock me at all. If T. Higgins has an impact, uh, a decent impact, and plays a, a significant role on this offense, same thing with Wilson and Davis Gaither on defense. And, and then you go to the the latter part of the the draft, rounds five through seven. Uh, Khalid Kareem, I, I think he can uh, start a, a little bit or, or get some, not necessarily start, but get some significant reps there on the edge as well, and start if Carlos Dunlap were to get dinged up like he did last year. So instead of moving Andrew Brown outside. You have a guy in Kareem who can get uh, some decent, significant snaps there uh, on the edge. So I think they have a bunch of contributors, a bunch of guys that could come in and help. But if I had to name one, I would say Logan Wilson, given the the lack of depth at that position, Mm -hmm. his skill set. I like that you compared him to Joe Schobert because I think he's of that that same uh, cut from the same cloth. I think he's a a pretty good athlete, right? A high end athlete that is a smart player. He might not be a. Uh, a 15-time Pro Bowl or future Hall of Famer, but he's going to be a guy that's uh, going to make some noise and, and make the right plays for you when you need him to. Yeah, I like Logan. I'm going to track his career with 
with you know high levels of interest and it stinks I got to see him play two times a year but here we are as we crossed over into these these waters where I felt like the AFC North really studied Brown's Twitter I said that over and over again like especially the Bengals who I'm going to talk with one of their guys who cover the Bengals or with the the Ravens I'm sorry the Ra- I felt like the Ravens stalked Brown's Twitter and everybody that Brown's Twitter <laughs> liked they took and then it's the same thing it happened I'm like Freaking Logan Wilson, man. I love that dude, and he goes to the Bengals. Can't somebody like the Chargers take somebody I really like? Eh, anyway, nonetheless. Um, I'll ask you this question. I, I was surprised a couple times. This is just me, and I'll open it up to you, that they passed on Josh Jones uh, a couple times, right? I, I was a little surprised by that, considering the tackle situation. Is is that a – was there – okay, I'll, I'll, it's very open-ended. Was there a, a pick they made that surprised you or a player they passed on that surprised you sort of as the draft went into day two, day three? Yeah, I, I think uh, T. Higgins to a, an extent was surprising. Yeah. Not that it was a wide receiver, but that it was T. Higgins. I think we all just kind of assumed, and, and I got guilty of this as well, and uh, it, it's on me for doing so, but I assumed it was Denzel Mims because of his testing, because of his relationship with uh, current Bengals wide receivers coach Bob Bicknell, who coached him. At, at Baylor back in 2017 so I just assumed all right Denzel Mims at 33 if they go wide receiver that's their guy and it wasn't and I, I'm not knocking the Higgins pick it's just something that I, I think you get so focused on testing and what Higgins did at, at Clemson's pro day versus what Mims did and it doesn't compare well Higgins is also two years younger and still ascending as an athlete so I, th- I think that's part of it but you're right the Josh Jones lack of uh, of him when he falls to round three you just assume not that it, it, you know Logan Wilson wasn't a guy that uh, that wasn't on the radar we knew he was on their radar but the fact that Jones falls and we thought he was a contention at 33 all the way to 65 it seems like they're going to run the pick in uh, given their weakness at tackle but uh, from what I was told Logan Wilson high round two grade Josh Jones round three grade that's the reality of it. And I think part of it might have been they projected him as a guard. They didn't think he could come in and be the, the right tackle that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Are they right about that? Only time will tell. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think if there is one weakness on this roster, Jake, it, it would be that, that tackle spot and really the offensive line. The Browns got Jack Conklin, got that right tackle. The Bengals didn't. And although they have the, the 2019 11th overall pick in Jonah Williams that, that's set to play left tackle this year, uh, they don't have a guy really to, to slide into that right tackle spot that, that the Bengals have to feel or, or can feel good about really going into the year. So that uh, that's certainly their biggest weakness, I think. And uh, the biggest shock, I think, is the fact that they they waited till round six. Uh, Akeem Adeniji from, from Kansas. That was their uh, their loan, uh, their loan offensive line pick and their only tackle pick of the draft. So I think that was a little surprising. Well, good stuff, James, man. I really appreciate you taking some time. I know this should be uh, uh, the type of draft year that sparks, hopefully, a long-term rivalry between these young quarterbacks and a lot of conversations between you and I. And um, I really appreciate you joining us, man. Yeah, of course. Anytime, Jake. It uh, it should be fun for sure. I'm just hoping that the, the two Ohio teams uh, whoop the team from uh, Pittsburgh and the other team from Baltimore. That's all. Wouldn't it be nice to make those two teams irrelevant for a change? Yes. No doubt about it. Thanks, All right, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Before we get to our next guest, I want to talk to you guys about Blue Chew and the opportunity they have online for those who are struggling to perform where it matters most. The beautiful part about Blue Chew is they now have a chewable tablet, same ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, 
and they work faster. You can even take them on a full stomach. You don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in a pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your, your orders will ship straight to your door in discreet packaging. Nobody has to know except for you and the person who matters most. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free. When you use that promo code BLUEWIRE, you just have to pay $5 in shipping. Again, that's BlueChew.com with that promo code BLUEWIRE. We appreciate Blue Chew and we thank them for their sponsorship of not only Blue Wire, but the OBR Film Breakdown. Next up on the list is Nick Faribault. He is going to cover um, the Steelers for us. He, he covers them for Pro Football Network in the draft. Um, he covers the Steelers for PGH Steelers now. He, he's, he's a great follow on Twitter, uh, very unbiased, covers a bunch of different angles for the Steelers, and really, again, does great draft stuff as well. And uh, he will give us some insight on the Steelers draft. You can follow Nick at Faribault FB. Faribault's F-A-R-A-B-A-U-G-H-F-B on Twitter. And, um, yeah, let's we'll, we're going to get him on here in a second. Before we do so, we're going to say the uh, Steelers draft. So they did not have a first-round pick. If you recall the Minka Fitzpatrick trade, they, they gave up that pick to uh, bring in the free safety, who is, well, not just a free safety. He's a Swiss Army knife back there and a good football player that ultimately filled a big need for them and is, uh, is a big part of their future. So in the second round, pick 49, they take wide receiver Chase Claypool out of Notre Dame. Some rumblings out of Pittsburgh, which we'll talk to uh, Nick here in a minute about the uh, Juju Smith-Schuster contract rumors. We'll see where that goes. Alex Highsmith is their pick in the third round out of Charlotte. Uh, running back Anthony McFarland is their fourth-round pick. They have two fourth-round picks. The other one is offensive guard Kevin Dotson out of Louisiana. And then safety Antoine Brooks out of Maryland and D-tackle Carlos Davis in the seventh round. So let's talk to Nick about the Steelers draft and see where they come out of this heading into 2020. So Nick, man, I'm eager to know. Tell me your thoughts. I know we, we you know, I discussed before we came on here about um, Browns fans are very familiar with Minka Fitzpatrick occupying that first round pick. But talk to me about the rest of the draft. What did you think of Pittsburgh's job with a limited, limited number of picks there? Yeah, I kind of overall thought it wasn't a spectacular draft by any means, but I don't think it was a bad draft. I think this is kind of a solid draft that improves the team, especially depth uh, in the depth category. You have a lot of issues coming into the draft with depth. So you only have really three receivers that you trust. You get Chase Claypool in the second round. Now, I'm not huge on Chase Claypool. Um, They're using him as a boundary receiver. But is he really going to be a boundary receiver? His his game's more predicated on physicality. And he doesn't really play to that 4-4-2 speed, so he's not a great route runner. He's kind of stiff. Not great after the catch. But he can stretch defenses vertically. And I think that's one of the things that the Steelers are going to try and do, is stretch the defenses with Washington and Claypool and move Juju back to the slot. So they're going to move Juju back to his best spot. And I think that is a really nice... Uh, addition to this offense for Big Ben, especially Juju only played in the slot 60% of the time last year. Want that to be up more than there, 80 or 90% because Juju is so good from the slot. So Claypool does allow that, but we got to see his progression as a boundary receiver to really say he's going to be there. Otherwise, I think he slides into the slot more so uh, once they realize maybe he doesn't have the ability to be that threat on the outside simply because he just does not have the ability to threaten defenses vertically uh, because he's just he doesn't separate very well. He doesn't have that quickness. Um, I like High, Alex Highsmith. I really like Alex Highsmith. I think this is yeah. a guy that's a twitched-up, bendy edge rusher. Uh, and obviously Bud Dupree in the last year of his contract on the franchise tag. So I think Highsmith, when you have a guy with that 
burst and bend, especially in a 3-4 outside linebacker type of role. I think Alex Highsmith has the ability to be a starter, and he's really starting to develop some counters and some you know real strategy as a pass rusher. He's not just speed rushing guys anymore. I mean, you saw that on the Clemson tape. Yeah. He's really starting to use his hands better and develop a plan right off the snap. So I really like what we see in Alex Highsmith. And then I think you look at their day three picks. And, I mean, I like Anthony McFarland. Um, I think he's a home run hitter that this team hasn't had in since Willie Parker maybe. I mean, literally, it's been that long. Um, so it's been like a decade since they've had a speed guy like Anthony McFarland on the roster. And he's very much going to compliment James Conner and Benny Snell and Jalen Samuels. Those guys are not burners in any way. So the Steelers now have a big play threat in the backfield. Uh, I really like what McFarland can bring to the Steelers' backfield. And then I like Kevin Dotson a ton in round four. Uh, mean road grader. Steelers football is smash mouth. I mean, that's kind of the old adage uh, from the 70s, you know. Uh, and then again, when they had Jerome Bettis and the bus, and they were running guys, and they were a run first team. And I mean, that's not what they're going to be this year, but it does. He does fit that old mold. And I think when you look at Dotson, this is a guy that's powerful first, maybe not a great athlete, but I don't think he reaches the second level bad. I mean, I think he takes very good angles to reach the second level. I think he's got decent mobility. I don't think it's elite by any means, but I think it's decent. So he's not a bad athlete by any means, so I think you're getting a nice player there. And I think a guy that could start uh, in 2021. And then Antoine Brooks, actually, in the sixth round. A nice pick uh, there could be a sub-package linebacker. I think he's going to play more linebacker than safety. Uh, just too stiff in his hips, in my in my opinion, to work in the deep halves uh, of the zones. And even a cover two scheme, uh, I just don't trust him there. I trust him in the box. He's a great tackler, good closing speed. He uses his instincts, really, to win on the football field. So that's how he's going to stick. And then Carlos Davis in the seventh round, more of an upside developmental tackle. Had a really good combine, 4-8-2-40. Really good at his weight and height. But, yeah, we'll see. He's got a lot of warts, especially his hand usage and his pad level. Those are the two big things. But overall, the Steelers, I think, filled out their roster nicely across the board. Yeah, good insights. Absolutely, I would I would kind of take this discussion to, and you touched on it a little bit, Nick. But which player out of that group of selections do you see impacting 2020's upcoming season the most? Yeah, th- this one's a bit tough um, because I don't think Claypool's going to beat out anyone for playing time because I think these top three receivers are show that they were very good last year. So if you look at a guy who makes instant impact, it's got to be either Alex Highsmith or Anthony McFarlane. I think Highsmith's going to be working that rotational outside linebacker role behind Bud Dupree and T.J. Watt. So he's going to replace what Anthony Chicolo brought. Chicolo gone now. Obviously, they released him in the offseason. So he's going to be a upgrade, I think a very vast upgrade from a pass rush perspective uh, over Anthony Chicolo. So he can have one uh, that's bigger than most. But I think... You look at this, I think Anthony McFarlane steps into that running back rotation, could become the running back too, with his ability to really not just bust angles with that speed, but also set up defenders on the line. I mean, he presses the line very well, manipulates those defenders. Uh, very good vision and processing for a guy. So he's not just a pure speed guy. And the Steelers have been wanting to implement more motion and outside zone concepts um, that I'm certain Browns fans are going to be really, really uh, – familiar with with Kevin Stefanski coming in. So that's kind of what the Steelers are going to do with Anthony McFarlane. They're going to use him on those outside wide zone schemes, and they're going to let him use that speed to bust angles 
of defenders and really set up guys. I mean, he's he's a tough runner too. I don't think he's a small, stocky running back like a Kareth yeah. White. So he's going to run tough too, and he's going to put his head down and try to run through you. So I think he's going to be a guy that probably has the most instant impact uh, in in this draft class overall. Yeah, I know. I've talked to you about this on Twitter, and um, if you you know if that name doesn't ring a bell for most of you here who are in Ohio, it's it's uh, McFarland. If you remember when the Ohio State visited Maryland a few years ago and Matt Canada put on a display of horizontal and vertical prowess. McFarland was a big part of that. And see, I think he ran for over 220 yards that day. It was ridiculous. He, great top end speed. So he's he, you're, you're definitely on track with a guy who, if he hits the open field and he does not have anything slowing him down, it's going to be a tough guy to get an angle on and stop. So uh, I think that you're right. It's a, it's a perfect mesh into Pittsburgh's backfield. You mentioned Claypool here, and I, I find it particularly interesting, Nick, is that um, some rumblings, and it's it's way too early here about Juju and his second contract and all of that noise that's going on. Is there like some apprehension in Pittsburgh about a wide receiver second contract being a thing after Antonio Brown and how that all turned out? Is there a little bit of apprehension going on there? And do you see Claypool as like a... Because I was surprised. I personally did not expect them to take a wide receiver in the second round, especially with how Deontay Johnson came along and James Washington coming along. Um, and, you know, obviously Juju is their number one guy in some variety. I just was sort of curious about how that Claypool pick might affect the future of, of Juju in Pittsburgh. Yeah, so you kind of look back historically and you look, okay, so who have the Steelers brought back on second contracts? The real answer, in, since 2000, under Kevin Colbert, has been... Only two players, Antonio Brown and Heinz Ward. So those are the only two receivers that have received second contracts. They let Plexico Burris walk. They let Mike Wallace walk. They let Emmanuel Sanders walk. They let Antoine Randall walk. They traded San Antonio Holmes. So, I mean, listen, they don't really deal out second contracts to receivers. So that's kind of the caveat here. Are they really going to do that for Juju? He's younger than any of the other guys I mentioned, though. When he's, I mean, he's only turned 24 this year. That's how young he is. So when you look at juju in that second contract does claypool affect that i would say no but he certainly can't be that big slot role uh and i'm kind of wondering they brought in eric ebron he's only really on a one-year deal i know it's a two-year deal but structured like a one-year deal they have it out after this year i wonder if claypool slides into that big slot tight end kind of role he'll never put his hand in the dirt as an inline tight end but if you mesh him out as yeah. a tight end out of the slot i think he could work like that yeah. Um, so I wonder if Claypool slides in there. It, it's an interesting fit because the Steelers are kind of banking on them developing him as a boundary weapon right now. So you have to develop that ability for him to separate, especially at the top of his routes. He has to do a much better job of separating there. His routes are too rounded if you're trying to snap it off. Uh, he doesn't do it well enough, yet the foot speed really is kind of the issue. It's just, it's his footwork and his releases off the line aren't great. He's not going to be a natural great explosive athlete anyways to really threaten guys vertically in off-man coverage, but he's not he, he's decently fluid uh, in and out of his breaks, so you can, there's stuff to develop there, and the Steelers do a great job of developing the receivers, yeah. so that's kind of something that is nice here. I, I don't really know what they're going to do with Claypool beyond this year. Um, it, it kind of depends on all he shows throughout uh, whatever type of version of camp we get this year and then throughout the season, it's kind of going to be, what does he show us? Uh, what does Deontay Johnson and James Washington show us? Does Deontay Johnson really take that leap? I think everyone in Pittsburgh wants Deontay Johnson to take that leap. He was great in his first year. He's obviously gives you some Antonio Brown flashes. Uh, I don't think he's anywhere near that, but certainly gives some flashes of that. James Washington had a great final eight games. 
uh, in Juju bounced back uh, from his dismal 2019 season. So it kind of all just factors in. It's, as you said, way too early. But I, I don't know what they're trying to do with Claypool. I don't know if they're going to keep him as a boundary receiver beyond 2020 or if they're going to move him into the slot as a big slot tight end role, where I think he's best suited. Um, I, I just don't know what they're going to do, really, in that receiver room. Uh, I think the kind of the caveat is they have the franchise tag available for next year. Juju, who's a, I think, is a very strong franchise tag candidate. Um, if they have the ability to put him under the cap, but they obviously need to pay TJ Watt and Cam Hayward and Mike Hilton yeah. and Matt Filer and all these other guys that they have to pay. So it's not going to be easy to bring him back, but certainly uh, it's going to depend on how everyone else in this receiver room performs and kind of what they envision Claypool as beyond 2020, because I'm not even sure they know what they're going to do with Claypool beyond 2020. Good insight. Good stuff. I, I'll ask you next. We have two more kind of questions to cover that I think are important. So I'm going to kind of take this question a little different than I did beforehand, uh, teeing these questions up for you. So with with this pick, uh, or sorry, with this draft, like was there a player that surprised you where they were picked or a player that you maybe would have preferred they selected um, no matter where they were, rounds two through seven? Is this a guy that maybe you thought, God, we should have taken him at that spot? Immediately when I look at that question, I go to round two again. I, I let Claypool's not a bad player, but – you passed on Denzel Mims. If you were looking for a boundary vertical threat receiver, I would much rather have Denzel Mims than Chase Claypool. And that's kind of the one thing that did irk me. I don't know. If they were working, looking for a boundary vertical threat, this is what Mims did a lot in college. I mean, he did do that a lot and threaten defenses with that height, weight, and speed he has. He's certainly more athletic on the football field than Chase Claypool is as a straight-line athlete, and he's more explosive than Claypool is. Um, so if they wanted to stretch defenses like that, then I think they should have gotten um, Denzel Mims. And that's kind of the one thing that has irked me uh, over the course of the past few weeks since the draft. I really do wish they did that. Um, I could have seen them go in safety, too. Ashton Davis was one of my favorite players that I watched throughout the cycle. I think he would have given them unparalleled versatility on the back end with Minka Fitzpatrick. And then as much things as Davis can condense with his man coverage ability and he play in a slot. He has the range to play in deep safety. So you same same things with Minka, kind of. And, I mean, that would have been really nice as well. So I, I think there were better players on the board at 49 than Claypool. And Claypool kind of a limited player in a lot of aspects. So you don't get a guy that can do so many things. Since you're kind of pigeonholing him into this boundary receiver role, because you don't want to kick Ebron out of the slot and you don't want to kick Juju out of the slot. So it, it's kind of a weird fit to me. I would have much rather had... Uh, Denzel Mims, that's kind of the one that I keep coming back to. Uh, we could have had Denzel Mims, and we probably should have had Denzel Mims. Yeah, good player. I'm surprised he fell to where he fell to. I'll close with this question for you, Nick. Is there an area on the roster, even after the draft, you're heading into 2020 that gives you the most concern? Easily, easily the safety room. I mean, listen, we have Minka Fitzpatrick. There's no worry about Minka Fitzpatrick. He's all pro safety. He's a ball hog. He's got great instincts. Everything you look at, Minka Fitzpatrick, he's a great football player. Uh, even Terrell Edmonds, I don't really worry about Terrell Edmonds. I think he's taken strides. Certainly his process to the finish of the play has gotten better. He's starting to see the field better. He's reading plays better. He's not just flying over the field. He's not an athlete uh, per se anymore. He's turning into a football player. Just cannot tackle yet, and he also has no ball skills, unfortunately, uh, just yet. Um, I don't. Granted, the Steelers need to develop him. But the, what 
really, really worries me is what's behind them. So you have Jordan Dangerfield. He's mainly a special teams guy. He's mainly an up back and a guy on kick coverage. Really good special teamer. Um, but then you have Marcus Allen, and then you have Antoine Brooks. So Brooks, probably a better player than Allen. I think he's a better tackler. I think he's smarter than Allen. So I don't think I don't envision seeing Marcus Allen making the team. But Marcus Allen isn't a deep safety anyways. And this is kind of what I come back to. This team doesn't have a deep safety on the roster behind Mika Fitzpatrick. So if Mika Fitzpatrick gets hurt, who slides into the free safety role? Is it Cam Sutton? Is it Mike Hilton? Is it a corner? Uh, that's kind of the question. So we don't know who the backup free safety is because there's no true free safety on the team besides Mika Fitzpatrick. And so you're kind of also limiting Mika Fitzpatrick, who talked about he, he wanted to move around more. He wanted to move into the slot. He wanted to come into the box more, kind of what he did at Alabama this year. But obviously, he's not going to be able to do that uh, after this draft because the Steelers just don't have another guy behind them. And, I mean, there's no other guy in that room that I would trust in deep coverage besides Edmonds and Fitzpatrick. So uh, the safety room in particular is very worrying to me. Uh, I think they need to add another safety, whether they go out and sign a cheap veteran, uh, whether they just add even a, even an XFLer that could just play a deep safety role. They haven't even done that. I mean, there's not a UDFA or even an XFL guy that they have signed that can play deep safety. So that is how bare bones it is to me so it's got to be the back of free safety at this point might be Terrell Edmonds and I mean that's terrifying he's not a deep safety he's a box safety that people have talked about him playing more of a hybrid box safety linebacker role this year so you have to get a deep safety behind Minka Fitzpatrick that's kind of the one thing that scares me if Minka Fitzpatrick goes down uh, this defense could collapse upon itself just because they wouldn't be able to defend the deep best yeah, it's especially interesting when they could have selected one, like you said, in Davis there in the second round. And and who knows? It's tough to have rosters that are so perfectly complete. You're always going to have a weakness in the NFL with the salary cap and you know so many talented players on Pittsburgh's roster spread across so many different positions. So it would be fascinating to track. It should be a fun year. Hopefully we get two good games uh, like I thought we had last year, two really good games. And, and, and I know, Ben, you guys are excited to have Ben, ben back anchoring quarterback position and, and providing – much steadier play there, so it should be fun stuff all around. Nick, thanks for taking some time, man, and uh, hopefully we can have a chat during the season as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Jake. Last but certainly not least, we switch over to the defending AFC North champion Baltimore Ravens, and to do so, we will bring in Ben McCusick, who is the um, one of the best film guys I've seen on Twitter in terms of coherently breaking things down with really quality diligence, and he does a great job on the Ravens. He's at Film Study Ravens. And he will provide us some really, really good insights uh, on the on the Ravens and their plan and, and how it came to fruition and what 2020 will look like for them. He, um, you know, did a, did a great job breaking down last year's fun run for them. And we'll get to him in just a second. Before we do so, let's talk about the Ravens draft. Round one, they take Patrick Queen, who is Jacob Phillips' positional teammate at LSU. They take him pick 28. Round two, the dreaded take of J.K. Dobbins out of Ohio State. Hurt to see that pick. Then round three, defensive tackle, pick 71, Justin Matabuke from Texas A&M. Devin Duvernay is the 92nd pick out of Texas in round three. Uh, pick 98, Malik Harrison is the pick after Jacob Phillips, who will be interesting to track those two players' careers. Malik out of Ohio State. And then in the uh, fourth round, pick 106, Tyree Phillips, the guard from Mississippi State. Ben Bredesen, uh, the guard from Michigan, with pick 143, round 5. Pick 170, Broderick Washington, a favorite of Hawaii, Browns Hui, Mr. Mike Krupka. So 
it hurt to watch these guys just take so many players from um, Brown's Twitter's draft love. It was really peculiar to watch this happening. We commented on it as when you, you've heard me bring this up earlier. I'll say it to Ken too. But um, James Proch is their pick in the sixth round out of SMU, and then they rounded out with a guy who I liked, Geno Stone, the safety out of Iowa. So let's get over and chat with Ken about what he thinks of this draft and, again, where he thinks the Ravens' 2020 outlook sits heading into, uh, heading into the season. Ken, we're going to dive right in, man. I, I'm, I'm curious to know how you felt like right after the draft and kind of as the draft has distanced itself a little bit, your impressions of this, this class for the Ravens. Yeah, so there's some surprising things I think you're going to hear from a Ravens fan here is that I was a little surprised by the direction of the Ravens draft. They spent 47% of their draft capital, if you're talking JJ points, on inside linebacker. And it was a position where they were certainly shorthanded last year, and they certainly needed an upgrade at that position in terms of having somebody they could trust, especially after Bynes went to Cincinnati. But it was also a position where they'd proven their ability with the current coaches to economize. And more important probably than just picking the best players of each type, if for if a GM, is trying to pick where can you economize and not have any great player and still get by. And, and this is this is a place where the Ravens, you know, they spent a ton of draft capital, and it has to work out now uh, on those two players. They had 10 picks, so they had other things they went to. The other, the other question was whether or not they really needed to spend any draft capital at running back. And taking J.K. JK Dobbins with their second selection was pretty high there. So a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, total J.J. points went to those three selections. Um, it was probably 60% of their total um, among those three are positions where they didn't necessarily have to have a player. Yeah, I was, I was quite fascinated, obviously, because, you know, being an Ohio guy and, and linked to Ohio State, living in Columbus, I think J.K. is a phenomenal football player, and having him go to Baltimore as, a, as someone who covers the Browns, I thought, man, that could not be worse. Now i got to go from this guy I really pull for to watch and probably rip Cleveland's defense up twice a year, and uh, that one was tough to stomach. Uh, Patrick Queen's fascinating. I watched a ton of Jacob Phillips, who the Browns drafted, and um, Patrick Queen is obviously the better player. I think that's not not mm-hmm. without question. Flies all over the football field. Uh, as you said, economizing that position is fascinating to me because um, they've gotten by, like you said, they've gotten by playing playing with with um, you know affordable players there. And I, I'm fascinated to see when they add an excellent athlete to that position, um, you know where that takes that defense because it could, you know, I, I guess it's like to me it's. It's a really, really good defense as is, and you keep adding some really exceptional players in there. It'll get, it could have the potential to get even better, which is a scary thought for the rest of the AFC North. The kind of an interesting point I want to make is that the Ravens didn't need a signal caller, so they have Chuck Clark already calling signals, and I think they want to keep it that way because it provides the maximum flexibility. Last year, the Ravens played a bunch of different packages where they leaned on the ability to substitute an inside linebacker heavily. So they played a lot of quarter, where you take both inside linebackers out. They played something called a race car dime, I call it that. And then they either have one inside linebacker or one defensive lineman on the field, but four outside linebackers on the field to rush the passer. That was very effective. You, you roll those three packages together, race car dime, something called jumbo nickel, that they, where they only play one inside linebacker and they play an extra defensive lineman. That's 25% of the packages they played last year. Wow. And so you're, they only played 1.33 inside linebackers per snap last year defensively. So it, they really economized at that position. And I'm just I'm surprised that they decided to completely rewrite 
the, the playbook effectively, which is what they're going to do. They're going to be playing a whole different set of defensive packages this next year. Well, that staff has prided themselves on being adaptable both sides of the football, so it'll be something to take note of. And when you and I get together maybe before a game uh, that they play this year, I'll be fascinated to hear sort of how that transition has gone. Um, next question, which I think is interesting because the Ravens are certainly in win-now mode as this roster is constructed that way. Which of these young guys that they have brought in do you see impacting the 2020 season uh, the most? The most, okay. Um, probably Queen. Uh, he's the first-round draft pick. I would expect him to be on the field pretty much every play. Uh, LJ Fort is still there, and LJ Fort had a whole half season of total football played in eight years in the NFL before he came to the Ravens. But uh, he played very well last year and uh, in a platoon role, and I imagine they'll still want to keep him on the field for some plays, Harrison on for some. So I think Queen is the guy, though, that will be most likely on the field for the most plays. Dobbins, I see, is getting a, a kind of a – uh, ramped up workload as the season goes along. You know, I'd like to get your opinion on this, but coming from Ohio State where they did a lot of read option, is he the kind of guy who is going to be adaptable very quickly to the mesh point Lamar Jackson needs? It's a very extended mesh point to allow Jackson to make that read of the edge defender. And and so the question is, is, Do- is that what Dobbins had been doing or did they use just a, a, a quick go mesh point in, at Ohio State? Well, with Justin Fields, they tried. Ryan Day tries to do more traditional throwing stuff. They do not do a ton of um, the types of mesh points. I think Baltimore does consistency, like you said, the long, the long mesh point. I think it will be something he'll have to adapt to. Uh, Ohio State did a lot of the inverted read option stuff, so lateral across the face, which Lamar does, but it is a longer, prolonged read. And obviously, Lamar is an infinitely better runner than Justin Fields, who's trying to prove himself as a thrower. So I think that will be something he'll have to adjust to everything I gather from people close to Ohio state, friends of mine who either work around that program or work close to it is that there's no more coachable player. They loved him from the second he arrived at Ohio state, no more coachable guy, no more adaptable guy. And will be ultimately a, a leadership type that they have at the running back position already. I think you would consider, you know, that position heavily impacted by the leadership of um, Mark Ingram. And I think that he'll continue and piggyback that as my dog decides to bark at the Amazon delivery guy here arriving. But um, nonetheless, I, I think that I think that it'll be interesting to see how they transition J.K. in, especially adding another, you know, phenomenal football player in the backfield that will work for a long time together. And then, um, you know, when, when I look at your draft, I kind of start trending toward the idea of um, – some of these picks, and there's a running joke I told you about off air here, which is Brown's Twitter is like, it felt like the Ravens were just continually taking guys that Brown's Twitter was like, man, I really like that guy. I can't believe that guy ends up in Baltimore. It seems like they know everybody they're going to pick. They're, they're, they're stalking Brown's Twitter, which is just a funny inside joke. But is there any of those picks sort of day two, late day two, day three that surprised you to, to an extent? I, the, the Broderick Washington pick, the, the, the Broderick pick was, was a strange one. Uh, to me, I didn't see it coming. They're very old on the defensive line, so they, they needed a second defensive lineman. But uh, I, I was a little surprised it was him. He wasn't really on my radar as a guy they would draft among my top 15 defensive linemen. I know you guys liked him a little more than that. I, I, I'm going to say one thing about like knowing the other team's draft board kind of thing. Uh, in 2010, I got a chance to see the Ravens draft board, the actual thing, not not before they had set it where everybody was 8.0, 7.5, whatever, but after it, the selections had been made and they'd already been placed in the team's column. And the interesting thing about it, the Kansas City Chiefs had four of the Ravens' red star players. And those are guys the scouts have said, I want my reputation linked to this guy. Yeah, They had four of the, of the, of the Ravens' red star players drafted one through four. 
<laughs> you can look and see it there. It's like McCluckster and, and Asamoah. And that. But here's the other thing. Ravens also have a black dot designation that they give to players who have either an injury problem they're coming off of or off-field issues. And the Redskins had six picks that year, four of them black dotted by the Ravens. Wow. That, that, that's probably uh, not a coincidence, in my opinion, right, in terms of those players ending up with those types of franchises that are winning and <laughs> those that are... Those that are ultimately struggling. I'll ask you one question before we go, Ken, which is um, if you look at the roster as currently constructed, they can still tweak it and there can be things done as we head into 2020. Um, Having seen what they drafted, having seen what they signed or let go in free agency, is there any spot that still gives you a little bit of concern going into the season? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they didn't address the edge rusher position at all, so they're going to have to do something about that. And and they they knew it. They they I guess they didn't really like the options as they came due, and so they decided, well, we're going to have to wait a year and get a guy in free agency here. And uh, Clowney is available still. He might be he might be a reasonable choice. Uh, and uh, Clay Matthews still. So there's a couple guys out there. Pernell McPhee is probably the most likely to come back to Baltimore. And then if they do that, then they're kind of committing to some of the uh, chaos schemes that they had last year to try and generate pressure because they won't have a lot of one-on-one winners. Well, good stuff, Ken. I appreciate it, man, taking time out of the middle of your day and, and giving us some really good insights on Baltimore. And again, we will be linked to Ken, hopefully getting some more insight from him as we head into what we hope is the 2020 season. So thanks for taking time for us, sir. Take it easy, Jake. Before we end this podcast, I do want to continue to talk about the 2020 draft selections. We went into great detail last podcast. I had John Stephenson on. Um, we, we dove into uh, pretty much the first five picks of the draft. He talked a little bit about Jacob Phillips. If you don't listen to the OBR Newswire podcast, we broke down Jacob Phillips a little bit more in depth now that John's film room is done. But we have film rooms up on everybody, and today we put up uh, I finished Nick, uh, sorry Nick Harris's film room, uh, the uh, center out of Washington that the Browns selected with pick 160. He uh, he checks in 61302 and is a an interesting prospect. He came in in 2016, and that recruiting class is just a 61 272 pound center, the 13th ranked center in the country. He ended up playing a ton of snaps for Washington. His, uh, his first year, a 68.4 overall grade playing right guard his freshman year uh, in 2016. Um, he saw four starts, rotated throughout the year, both left guard and right guard. Uh, didn't have not, did not play very well in pass protection. He was moved to the starting right guard role in 2017. That's why I said he has a 68.4 overall grade um, and, and finished pretty poorly again. Not really where he wanted to be after that second season. Then he was moved to center, which is where I think obviously the Browns are going to project him to be at the NFL level for his last two years. He saw improvements both in pass protection and run blocking, and um, you know, a, 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 I would say top end of this draft class of centers overall is among the 20 best centers graded 2017 and or sorry 2018 and 2019. Um, but just an interesting guy, really low center of gravity. I think what the Browns were drawn to is the fact that he can really move. Um, you know, and this offensive scheme is built for guys who can move at the center position. His 5140s in the 86th percentile for his position group, his 29.5 vertical, 76th percentile, 87 broad, 20 bench reps. Uh, not, not very good bench, and that reflects in his play. He's not very strong at the point of attack. He's not going to be a guy who outmuscles a zero head-up nose. Is just going to be a guy who uses body angle 
and his low center of gravity to leverage until just the ball carrier gets by. He's not a nasty finisher. He doesn't do any of those things exceptionally well. When he has to gap back in power schemes, he's not a road grader. He's, he often can get a little too um, lean heavy, and guys with, with, with bigger upper body torsos and more upper body strength can throw him around in terms of getting his hands off of them. He is fundamentally okay, but he has limitations due to his size and limited length that uh, that is certainly going to eliminate him from playing anywhere other than center. Um, he does have a propensity to get wide feet, which I wrote about. You can find in today's article when bull rushes happen. He almost ends up hopping back uh, a little too often as he's trying to gather gra- gather himself in the center of gravity. And what happens is, you know, his, his feet, two feet can get up in the air. And it's just... When he starts to play the really dominant interior players like Calais Campbell types, it's going to be a real issue for him, and I'm not sure how he's going to be able to handle head-up, bull-rushing, strong, nose-guard type players. Even players that are in a shade, the Browns will almost have to help in, uh, in certain situations. But if he can get fundamentally stronger, the way he runs, the way he gets out and is able to run in the wide zone scheme and understands angles and climbing to the second level, he moves extremely fluidly for a, for an offensive lineman and he's a little on the shorter side which could help Baker Mayfield you know see things in some capacity but um, just he's a finesse player and that's not necessarily a, a negative about him he handles speed guys really well the problem is where he is lined up he won't see a ton of speed guys so a, a player who I think will be effective in this wide zone scheme he probably does not fit any other scheme in the league than this one and that's why he falls into the fifth round and pick 160. But for this scheme, if he can come along sort of naturally at his own pace and learn from Treader and, um, you know, like I said, get stronger, physically stronger, working out in a weight room program at the NFL level as he is a grown man and gets a little bit older, he has the potential to do it. He has some innate traits that are really special in terms of his athletic ability. Um, his, you know, the screen game will be a big part of this Browns offense as it was for Kevin Stefanski last year. And he can really get out and move and help understand, uh, open up alleys in screen game. And, and if they do want to pull the center, um, some teams like to, if they have a really nice athlete at the center position, they will pull him and run schemes. He is a guy who can get out and run. And I provided some film analysis of that uh, ability for him. So durable player, above average in almost every category, but is not a road grader, not a power guy. He will have to get by with finesse angles and using his fleet uh, feet to, to get what he needs to get done at the NFL level. Hopefully a guy that can come along over time. I do not see him competing at right guard right away whatsoever. He's going to be a long-term center. Maybe by the end of his rookie contract, he will get that sort of opportunity. So go check out the film room. It is uh, up at the OBR today. We will have a companion piece on the YouTube channel probably Monday, something along those lines that will uh, tease a little bit more. But we've got a ton of film in there, a ton of all 22 clips, so get over there and check that out if you can. All right, that's a wrap. Big shout-out again to Ken, Nick, and James for jumping on, talking about their respective teams. Those are great Twitter follows if you want to follow the rest of the teams kind of from a distance in the AFC North and see what's going on with those franchises. I strongly urge you guys to follow those people if you are not already. And um, again, thank you to our sponsors, Blue Chew and BetOnline.ag. We hope you guys are listening to the OBR Newswire daily podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and listen to that one when you get opportunities to do so as your daily routine may be coming back into focus here in May and into into June. Uh, we'll, we'll provide steady, good morning content for you, looking at what's on the site and so forth. 
over there at the OBR Newswire podcast. Very easy to find, Apple, iTunes, all of the traditional places. Hope everybody has a great Friday, a great rest of the week, and into the weekend. And um, keep your family safe. Hope everybody's staying safe around you. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you guys subscribing. Appreciate you giving us reviews on iTunes. Always, always value those things. So have a great week, great weekend, and um, go Browns. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.